when I was a little girl, now I'm taking you back in time, and I'm totally dating myself this, but I'm taking you back in time in terms of technology. Not MP3s, not CDs, keep going. Not cassette tapes, keep going. <laughs> not eight tracks, but a true vinyl record. There you go. Now, when I was a little girl, I had a, some kind of little cheap record player that played those little 45 records. Now, my older brother, he had the cool stereo that played the big 33s, but, you know, as a little sister, and I surely was a little girl, I had the little 45 record players. And I really, for whatever reason, have these three particular, I guess, just records that I remember. And one of them was called, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. And if you're really, really old like me, you might know, who was it by? A girl named Lynn Anderson. Y'all want to hear just a little peek? You'll see how we grew back then. Let me hear just a little peek if we have it. Girls like a I know you're digging my lens. That is funny. That is so funny. Well, that's just my little treasure. That's what I thought of when I read today's lesson. It was God never promised us a rose garden. I'll tie that in as we get started. But um, let me focus this with just a short word of prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for our chance to be together today. And Father, to hear the truth that comes from your words, to hear the hope and promises that comes from your word, Lord, settle our hearts and make us teachable. Help us not just to gain knowledge, but to gain a life that follows and honors you, Lord. So um, I just pray we would soak in your truth today and be encouraged. Amen. Well, I was encouraged as I started reading 9 and 10 in the book of Matthew and really, the first thing I noticed as I started walking down those scriptures was that chapter 9 was just loaded with miracles. That was really exciting. Did y'all enjoy that? I hope you didn't just take the, the easy short road and go, oh, Jesus, check. Miracles, check. Yeah, yeah, and move right on. I hope you stopped and tried to envision yourself as a real person at the real time. And kind of think and feel what it went like. Because, guys, there's men that couldn't see for years and years. And all of a sudden, there's light and there's color and they can see. There's a girl that was dead. Their parents and community were all grieving that, oh, this sweet little girl's gone. And then she's walking out of the room healthy and well. I mean, these are exciting, exciting recaps from a little glimpse of history. And I hope it leaves you excited and encouraged as well. I think this part of the gift here is that God actually, this is our glimpse of when he pulls back the veil just a little bit where we get to see a little of his real power and his real authority and who he is. And guys, that lists me all kind of giddied up because that's whose team I'm on. That's the leader I'm following. Kind of a little bit of a my daddy's bigger than your daddy kind of moment. But just the same, it's, it, that's part of what excites me. So chapter 9, let's take a quick look at some of the things that we got to see. In verse 6, we saw that he healed the paralytic as well as forgave him. Two giant things there that really steered us to the authority of who is this man. 
in verse 21, we see that he healed the bleeding woman. And guys, she had been hemorrhaging for over 12 years. And because of that was considered unclean, was an outcast. This didn't just change her physically, this changed her socially and her whole world became new and vibrant because of this. In 22, we see that he healed the synagogue official's daughter. This is Jairus' daughter. And actually, in the process of this, this is one where he's in the middle of saying, no, she's, she's really asleep. She's alive. How did they respond? Do y'all remember? What did they do to Jesus? They laughed. So in the midst of this kind act, they laughed at him. But they didn't laugh long, did they? Um, in verse 30, we see that he healed the two blind men. And now all of a sudden there's color and there's brightness and there's depth perception. And they didn't have to be led around anymore. And they didn't have to beg. They could be contributed a whole new level. Um, in 33, we see that he cast out the demon from the mute man. He can hear. He can talk. He can finally communicate all those things he's been thinking and feeling. How life-changing. And then in 35, it tells us there were many more proclaiming the gospel he was healing every kind of disease and sickness that's whose team we're on that just tickles me now I stopped and I asked myself my favorite question in the whole world is why why did he do some of these things and I think first of all we can see that you know in chapter 10 it tells us well one he felt compassion for them this is just part of God loving these people and caring for these people but also, I want to stop and kind of set the landscape for you. At that time, um, the culture was different. And the Jewish people, especially the Jewish leaders and authority, they had certain expectations. Like, if you put it out there that you have a certain authority, they expected you to back it up. Show me your credibility. Kind of like, show me the money. Bring it to the table. I want to know that you really have that kind of authority. And take a look in John chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? In 1 Corinthians 1, it starts off, the Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And the words of Jesus himself come out in John 4. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. So that's the first nugget to digest is that at that time, if you were going to do business in this arena, you had to be able to prove outwardly you were who you said you were. In John 2, another reason he does this is to reveal his glory. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. That was when he turned water to wine at the wedding. And in Mark 16, we'll see that it confirms his word. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. That's some of the reason we saw him do the things that he did here. Now, in your discussions today, um, on question number four, there was a question about, well, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but some of the things he told the disciples to do, were they unique just to the disciples, or do they apply to you and I today? And I want to be clear on just one point. In verse 8, this is where he specifically tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast, lepers, sorry, cast out demons. Um, 
that particular command was just for the apostles. I've told you one, we know that because that was the climate of the time. That's what they were expecting to authenticate his credibility. Um, But two, I also want you to understand, at that time, there was no internet. There was no BibleGateway.com. There was not even the written word. I mean, these things were still happening and playing out, much less had they all been recorded at that time. You and I here in America, we had the full revelation of God's word revealed to us. We have thousands of years of testimony right at our finger, you know, that's passed down very credibly to know who and what God is and all about. We don't have to have a a miracle on every corner to kind of get the word out. Now, I know some of you are in there wondering, well, can God do miracles today? And I would tell you, you bet. He's the same God that he was back then. Now, I don't know exactly what, why, or how God chooses to do his miracles, but I will tell you this. If you've traveled outside of the U.S. to places where this word is not as prevalent, the signs and miracles are more prevalent. So it's just one of the ways he gets his word out. And and I kind of, I ask you, whatever you're spinning in the back of your mind, I want it to get personal for a minute. How would you respond if you saw a miracle right before your eyes today? And I'm not about to pull something out of my hat or whatever, but, but I mean, picture for a minute that, you know, someone you've known has been in a wheelchair their whole life, they've never taken a step, and they're walking across the floor after an encounter with Jesus. How would you respond? Would you be skeptical? Would your faith allow room for God to do something like that? That's a good question. And a little bit different form, I want you to know the Keglers had our own personal miracle about 11 years ago. And it is, to me, still makes me kind of just shake when I think about it because it was so, so meaningful at the time. This is the fam about 11 years ago. And you need to know that, um, you know, all three of those kids were in car seats. And I had an old sports car with two doors, the kind that you had to slide the seat forward just to get to the back seat. Well, that back seat didn't hold three car seats, and we literally couldn't fit our family in that car, and it had a whole lot of miles, and the bottom line is we knew it was time to just move on to a different kind of vehicle, but at the time, guys, we were on Young Life staff, and it truly felt that we were like this far above the poverty line. We were praying about every Coke, every pack of gum, every little tiny purchase we made because It was just that tight. There's no way we could have afforded a new car, and yet the need was just right here so obvious to us. (sighs) Two or three families knew about our need. They gave us a Suburban. Guys, it was three years old with low mileage, in perfect shape. Here are the keys. Don't pay us a penny. Go and be blessed. Nothing could have felt more miraculous to this girl at the time. I'm like, I have a safe way to keep my kids around, and, you know, we're not going to have to sell our house to do it. I mean, it was just oh, truly miraculous. So that was a very, very practical way that God showed me his care and his, um, how big he really is. So as we move on to chapter 10, we're going to enter the, por- the portion of a scripture called the Mission Discourse. This is where Jesus actually is about to prep the disciples and send them out, and they're going to begin their ministry. They've kind of been watching and learning, and we see in verse 1, he actually transfers his, some of his authority to the 12 disciples, 
But along with that transfer of authority, he gives them a few guidelines, and let's take a look at some of those. Number one, he said who they are. In other words, he named the 12 disciples. This is who I'm giving the instructions to. In addition to that who, he also tells who do I want you to go to. I want you to go to the house of Israel and not the Gentiles. And the house of Israel is just a generic big term for saying anyone who's Jewish. I want you to go to Jewish people at this time right now. And the what? What did he ask them to do? Well, he asked them to heal the sick, you know, cleanse, cast out. But he said, but don't take any money or compensation for it. Now, the where. The where was misleading until I started really looking this one up. The where, they were to stay in Galilee and, um, and not go down into Samaria. And a picture is really worth a thousand words here. So I don't know if you can see the words that are in white, but look at the words in white toward the bottom. In the Judea area, you'll see Jerusalem down there. In the middle area in white, you'll see Samaria. And in the northern part of this map on the top is Galilee. Now, when Jesus is, is addressing the crowd in 9 and 10, he's actually in Capernaum up there in the Galilean Valley. And he wants him to stay in that region, not go south to Samaria or east or north or wherever. He wants him to preach just to the Jews in that area. Didn't a visual help. I just thought that was worth its weight in gold. So, all right. Now, as he gives them the guidelines, here's what you do. He also kind of set their expectation level. And I don't know for you, I don't like a bad surprise. I would much rather have realistic expectations going in than to get blindsided by something a little bit later on. And I thought for a second, that is very much what Kyle and I do when we do premarital counseling for other couples. We're big fans of marriage, think it's great. I've got a wonderful husband. It's a good deal for us. But we want them to know that, you know, it's not all sunshine and roses in a marriage. Um, something just got in my eye. So if you see me, I'm not really winking at you. There's just something crazy going. Um, but anyway, the point being is that he wants them to know as these couples come and sit on our couch, they literally, you know, are thinking about their cake and their dress. And this is driving me crazy. Something has truly just gotten in my eye. I don't have contacts. It's just something that's gotten in my eye. Sorry. Anyway, I think I got it. So as we talk to these couples, we tell them, you know, the wedding's fun and getting to live in the same house is so fun. But you know what? Prince Charming sometimes is going to leave his dirty underwear on the floor. And you may burn a dinner or two. And there's a good chance he might not be able to fix the sink, but your daddy could know how to fix the sink. You know how we carry all those expectations in. And the good news is while we laugh and have fun with it, we also kind of help them to have some good discussions before they walk down the aisle to make sure they know, okay, what am I really buying into here? Because marriage is great, but it does take work. Um, I think Jesus is being kind to the disciples now by setting their expectations and saying, look, this is not going to be all sunshine and roses. I mean, yeah, it's cool to be able to perform these miracles, but you know what? You're going to get persecuted for it. And gals, I love this. I'm stealing the words from my friend Catherine because I love the way she said this last week. She said, it's the believing that's free, but it's the following him that's costly. And that, I thought, was a great saying because the following is costly. And guys, if Jesus is our master, we should expect it. Because if you look in um, John 15, 20, Jesus speaks these words. He says, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. 
if they persecuted me, then they are going to persecute you also. And if he's our master, it includes us. In Matthew 10, 23, but whenever they persecute you in the city, did you see the word if in there? <laughs> you know, I didn't either. It's whenever. It's coming. And in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. Ladies, it is a fallen world we're living in right now. There's sin, and there's the consequences of that sin and choices ricocheting all over the place. And the world is messy, and I, we don't want to mislead you into something different. I think one of the greatest crimes that happens is someone misleads a new Christian, a new believer, into thinking that as soon as you trust Christ, your world is going to be smooth and perfect and worry-free. Have you ever known anyone who had that mentality that, oh, I'm not going to struggle with this, this isn't going to be hard, all my... Things will easily be taken care of, and that's not what Christ promises. And I think about this very specifically for my children. My um, teens, my girls are in their, their younger teenagers, and they really don't know what's coming as they start making their stand for Christ, as they start standing out from the crowd, and, and they start differentiating themselves from their peers. They don't know what's coming, but it is coming. I don't want them to be surprised when... They walk into these situations. Um, I, want to, I want my girls to remember, and I want us to remember what he says in verse 16. Be, be shrewd as serpents, but be innocent as doves. That's some wise advice to carry with you as you navigate those waters. He also tells them in verse 21, expect it, it's coming even from your loved ones, from brothers and fathers. How hard and heartbreaking that would be. But I want you to know in the midst of that, all the 12 disciples chose to die for their faith. It didn't steer them away. They, even when they got really, really rocky, you're going to find they stayed the course. Now, we know, for example, that Judas Iscariot hung himself. We know 10 of them were martyred for their faith. And we know John was exiled, but not before he was boiled in oil and managed to survive. They did not turn away because of the purity and the quality of the truth. Once you know truth, you can't turn away just because the going gets hard. And ladies, these men were faithful with what Jesus charged them to be. Ladies who live in Plano, Rowlett, Garland, Highland Park, Lake Highlands, Richardson, will you be faithful with what God puts before you on your plate? That's part of our challenge. But guys, as he puts that challenge before you, he does not leave you in this alone. Not alone. I, did you love verse 19 and 20 where he says, I will tell you what to say? Today that especially was very comforting for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, write this next one down because this is even more comforting and encouraging. Deuteronomy 31.8. Love this. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. You can hang your hat on that one. That's a keeper. I love that. In John 16, I told you the first part of this verse that, oh, in this world you're going to have trouble, but I didn't finish it. The second half, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There's nothing in this world that's too big for my God to handle. I need to hear that. And in Matthew 5, 11, 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're not going to be out there flying solo. Now, one of the reasons that I have always, you know, especially when my children were very young, I kept a really close eye on them. The reason's obvious to us. It's because I valued them so much. They were so precious to me. I didn't want them to touch a stove or run off in a store where I could lose them or whatever. I, I kept good, good care of them because they meant so much to me. Your father is viewing you that way. Take a look at the end of this chapter in verses 28 through 30. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and can't kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and the body in hell. Here we go. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth much more than many sparrows. Repeat after me. I am worth much more than many sparrows. That and much more. He knows every hair on your head. He's not going to just leave you dangling out there in nowhere's land. Some people think that, okay, God, you are so big. I can only really take important things to you. Like I can take the people in Haiti to you or any other earthquake or big tragedy or someone who has cancer. But I really can't tell you about this little tiny problem I'm having with my child. Yes, you can. Jesus teaches just the opposite, ladies. He cares about the details. And his concern for the details in your life should give you confidence that he can control the larger affairs of your life as well. The rose garden does not come on this side of the grave. But I want you to take the master gardener's hand, let him walk you down the path that he has for you, and with every provision that he deems necessary for you. And you'll get to that other rose garden eventually. But you've got the master gardener's hand right now as you're walking today. Girls, we love you so much. Go on and have a great week of worship. Thanks. <laughs>